Hello there, my name is Phil Williams and I would like to welcome you to Audio Angling, the podcast site of fishingfilmsandfacts.co.uk. Whether you're a sea angler or not, or even an angler at all, sharks never fail to fascinate. So much so that many of the blue sharks taken out of Louis in the 1970s and 1980s were caught by curious first-time holiday anglers, wanting to get out there and have the brush with what were, and in many ways still are, though often undeservedly so, seen as feared apex predators. Unfortunately, those early days of popularity on the blue shark scene came at a price as both numbers and average individual sizes plummeted. A clear sign, if ever one was needed, that for some species of fish, inappropriate angling can have a devastating role to play, in much the same way that commercial fishing can. On the other hand, angling also has the potential to generate a great wealth of scientific data that seemingly can't be derived in any other way. It's all about striking the right balance. To talk about this and all manner of other things shark-related, linking up with me here is renowned shark conservation expert Richard Pierce. So this fascination of yours with sharks, has it come from an angling perspective, a scientific perspective, neither or both? I think my fascination with sharks is from neither. It's basically, uh, I never grew up, and I don't think there's much point in growing up, really. I got fascinated with sharks when I was a schoolboy of eight, and I went out on an Easter holiday to Kuwait, which was a lovely, warm, sunny place from a boarding school in North Cornwall, which was a grey, dismal, uh, horrible place in the winter. And I've been looking forward to swimming with sharks all term, and my disappointment when my mother said, you can't swim on the beach off our house because there's been a shark attack, my disappointment was enormous. But having said that, I then spent the whole of the school holiday sitting on the garden wall, praying for a shark to come along and eat somebody. And I was very disappointed again when I went back to school not having seen a shark attack. Several years later, I'm obviously quite relieved that no one got eaten. So a childhood obsession with sharks has managed to stay with me all my life because my father was in the army, so I grew up in the Middle East, I went back in the Middle East to work. And of course, although sharks are accessible in Britain in terms of angling and, and what have you, they're a lot more accessible from a diving and swimming and other recreational point of view when the water is warm and so on and so forth. So I grew up in the Red Sea and in the Gulf where sharks in those days were plentiful. We came back here to farm from the Middle East in the probably the mid-80s. And at that point, I started going down to Lou because as a schoolboy in Cornwall, I'd always been aware of the Shark Angling Club. And not long after I started going down to Lou. I realised that they were catch and releasing, but they weren't tagging anything. The tagging sponsorship had ceased, so I sponsored the restart of tagging in lieu. I'm guessing now, I'm afraid, I, I can't do more than guess, I'm guessing this is probably now about 1998-9-2000, something like that. I sponsored the tagging of the sharks in lieu for two, three years, something like that, and then the club developed their own way of financing and took it on from there and they now form part of the UK shark angling programme coordinated by Ken Collins at Southampton University. Yeah, I once met up with Ken Collins on Locketeve in Scotland where we were tagging common skate. Yeah, he's a good guy, a good friend. Now the stuff you do here in the UK is just one strand of the work you do both with sharks worldwide and with the media. Sadly, in the UK, I have mostly decided that sort of on-the-sea work is something that I can't program anymore. 
I operate through the Shark Conservation Society and we put together bunches of volunteers to go and do specific sort of expedition-based scientific pieces of research. And the vagaries of the weather in Britain has made us abandon it here. We went to the Highlands once, for example, in the Hebrides and spent the whole of a 10-day expedition, um, well, 8 out of 10 days, staring at the window, watching the rain run down, listening to the wind howl. Well, when you've got young students paying to be part of something and the weather prevents them doing anything at all, you get to a point eventually that you sort of stop. The same thing happened to us in Cornwall with Paul Beagle work, tagging work and, and recording and filming work. So sadly, we've kind of given up work in the UK, but one of my big missions in life, and this was several years ago now, was to bring the sort of existence of sharks in British seas to the general public. Most people, if you stop them in the street sort of 10 years ago and said we've got 30 species of sharks, including blues, makos, thrushes, hammerheads, blah, 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 would have thought you were barking mad. So that became something of a mission. I wrote the book Sharks in British Seas. The first edition was published probably about seven, eight years ago now. We made a film called Sharks in British Seas that was a partner project to the book. The book sold out, so we've now reprinted it, and the second edition's now also selling very well. So I sort of made that something of a mission. Of course, shark anglers have always been aware of, uh, of the sharks we've got here, but the general public hasn't, and so that was a sort of public awareness thing that I decided to get involved in. Obviously, as this is an angling podcast site, Anglers both want and need to know how they can have influenced sharks across the board in UK waters. So what level of effect, either positive or negative, can anglers have on the various shark species? I think anglers have got a tremendous role to play in the Shark Trust, which I'm chairman of the Shark Trust and of the Shark Conservation Society. In the Shark Trust we have several sort of engagement programs with anglers. Anglers can get involved in things like tag and release, and it's through tagging that an awful lot of our knowledge has come. These days, of course, the most useful tagging tends to be data collection tagging, you know, the sort of satellite tagging and the computer-based tags. But tag and release is still very, very valuable. I also think anglers have a part to play in sort of running what I call sentinel operations. The Paul Beagle, for example, has now got a zero TAC as far as the European Union's concerned. Well, it's all very well not being allowed to catch it and not being allowed to land it if you do catch it by mistake. But who's out there watching to see what the population's doing and to see if the zero total allowable catch is having any effect? Now, anglers working around Britain's coastline, reporting to a central point in DEFRA or something, for example, could be a very valuable sentinel aspect of uh, knowing what's happening to populations. Not just poor beagles, I use that as an example but to all populations. I'll give you a classic example. In the best years in Loo, in one year in the 1960s at some point, they caught over 6,000 sharks on Rodden Line with a fishing effort of about 18 boats. I'm not sure who it was, but I heard of one guy in Pembrokeshire this year who caught 83 in an afternoon. So the high point in Loo was 6,000, the low point was 86, and now this year one guy in Pembrokeshire has caught as many in an afternoon as they caught in the whole season in Lou about 14 years ago. These sorts of figures are very valuable and they need to be recorded, put together, collated and passed on to organisations like the Shark Trust and other organisations. And that way anglers can play a very, very useful role. The other way I think anglers can play a very useful role is in providing a kind of unpaid warden force. You've got the waters all around the British Isles. There's a massive amount of talk going on and has been for some years about marine protected areas, marine protected zones and all sorts of things. Well, who's supposed to police these? 
We don't have a lot of assets in terms of being able to watch and police these zones, and the shark angling skippers are a fantastic asset sitting there waiting to be used. They know their waters, you know, they know their sharks, they know what boats should be there, what boats shouldn't be there. They're eyes and ears that I think are currently going to waste. I would like to see a lot more involvement with shark angling skippers all around Britain. There has been a certain amount of angler-driven regulatory success already up in Scotland through SSACN, the Scottish Sea Angling Conservation Network, covering a good number of shark and rare species. Absolutely. Um, the thing that worries me about anglers and angling is that when all said and done, to Mr and Mrs General Public, it is a blood sport. And I think people involved in blood sports, and not just angling, but most blood sports, are very often their own worst enemies because of the sort of image that they exude. And I think that shark anglers, not just the skippers, but all shark anglers, need to realise that if they're going to still be enjoying their sport, and I think they should be still enjoying their sport, but if they want to be enjoying their sport in 10, 15 years' time, it's going to be all about public perception. It's going to be all about being a strong enough body to have your voice really heard. And the Scottish uh, Sea Anglers Conservation Network are a really good example of a bunch of guys getting together and forming a strong, cohesive body speaking with one voice. I really would love to see the same thing happen in England, because at the moment we've got kind of disparate efforts going on in various different centres, perhaps being run very well, perhaps not. But the point is it needs to have a big, strong, unified voice to protect the sport. What about any potential detrimental effects caused by shark anglers here in UK waters? Such as? Well, inappropriate handling, say, or maybe even posing for photographs. This is part of what I call the sort of PR that shark anglers have got to get involved in. If you're going to go and catch a fish, that increasingly the public are aware of sharks. I mean, there was a recent sort of internet firestorm when some, frankly, innocent guy bought a thresher down in South Devon and put it on display and then ended up getting death threats and things. So the public are now hugely shark sensitive, sometimes in my view go over the top. So if shark anglers want to avoid criticism, when they're handling sharks they need to be doing so according to sort of best practice code. There are right ways to handle them, I wouldn't dare tell any shark angler how to catch one, but when they get to the side of the boat there are right ways to handle them release them and tag them and so on and so forth, and there are wrong ways. Obviously their ventral side needs to be supported if possible. Obviously bigger animals deal with them in the water rather than lift them into the boat. They're going to come on board. You need doors at water level in the bow. You just can't start lifting them up and pulling them around. All these sorts of things that shark anglers need to be aware of. But actually I'm very heartened because shark anglers, and I've been involved with shark anglers now for probably 25-30 years, they're a million miles away today from where they were 25, 30 years ago. And I'd say most of them know what they're doing when it comes to handling and catching sharks. In fact, there's another role for shark angling skippers there, which is a scientific support one. For example, if you are Scientist X and you want to go and catch and tag poor beagles, you go to the Home Office. I think you do two days training in a classroom in Bristol, so it's mostly theoretical. And then you get issued a license if you've got a valid scientific program to go and catch a shark. Now that might be a 300 pound poor beagle. That's a bit different to sitting in a classroom. And shark angling skippers all around the country, and many shark anglers themselves of course, they've got all the experience necessary to properly catch, handle and release these animals. In my view the Home Office ought to be licensing certain shark angling skippers around the country 
and those are the people who the scientists should have to go to when they're going to do scientific catch and release. So I am scientist X, I want to go and catch animals in North Yorkshire. You would look up or you'd ask the Home Office, who are your registered skippers for North Yorkshire? You would have to use one of those boys. I'm very hot on this because, you know, we have a responsibility to animals to sort of handle them, and if we're going to release them, to release them in the best shape possible. Yet despite our best efforts, anglers still can inadvertently do damage to fish. Typical examples would be time spent out of the water, and even poorly conducted in-water revival attempts. So what suggestions can you offer that might help improve the situation, where despite the failings, anglers genuinely have the well-being of these fish at heart? Well, frankly, I think most of them are doing it. Most of them are doing it quite well, in my experience. It is very important if you've got a shark on the deck for any length of time, it's a big animal, it's very important to keep it oxygenated. So salt waters across the gills, obviously, is very, very important. Support the ventral side, very, very important. Circle hooks as opposed to J-hooks, another very, very important thing. Yeah, all these things are very important, because the angler wants to be sure that he does the minimal damage possible, otherwise it leaves him open to criticism. One thing that I think anglers need to be aware of is the image they exude. If you go to lots of shark angling skippers' websites, some of those images are not good. You've got very large sharks being handled badly with the ventral side all distended. You've sometimes got sharks on the deck with blood present on the deck. We all know animals bleed, but why stick it out there for the general public to see? You've got sharks being posed for photographs with their jaws held open. This kind of macho, I'm tough, I've caught a shark image, not clever. It's really not what shark anglers need to be projecting if they want to still be in business in 10, 15 years' time. We all know, anyone who's ever caught a large fish knows that you can have all the rules in the world, but things can very often go wrong in practical terms. All sorts of things happen to fish. And so the rule book is never going to be able to be precisely adhered to. And that's where experience comes in, knowing what to do and when to do it and how to do it. But I'm really encouraged. I think most skippers are pretty good these days. Most shark anglers are pretty good these days. And as long as those skills are passed on, as long as organizations like SSACN and an English equivalent or two, if we could get it, as long as they train their people, then I think shark anglers have got everything to look forward to. I think that part of the problem is also the fact that despite this apex predatory persona that certainly the bigger shark species have, hidden beneath all of that, they can also be very fragile fish which are easily damaged. Yeah, absolutely. And once you've dealt with a shark and, you, and it's gone back in the water, you need to see it go off okay. I mean, I've had to get in the water with a poor beagle and turn it into the current and make sure, and, and then you feel it come alive in your hands again from what felt like a dead fish. Yes, they are big, tough guys to look at, but they are pretty delicate. Therefore, they need handling with experience and with responsibility. That's absolutely right. And they're particularly sensitive around the nose area, which I know carries a lot of sensory equipment. Sure, yeah, absolutely. All handling has got to be done sensibly. I mean, I can remember in the old days, you often used to see them being sort of half hoisted out of the water on the hook with someone with a gloved hand around the trace. Then they'd be grabbed in the gills, particularly poor beagles. I haven't seen that sort of handling now for a long time, which is a very good thing. Something else which also leaves sharks and rays open to sudden and long-lasting population dips is the breeding strategy, which when they're left to get on with things can be an advantage, but when pressure is applied for whatever reason, can suddenly become a disadvantage. So perhaps you should explain a little bit about that. We probably haven't got enough time, it's a bit of an overcomplicated subject. But in, in general terms, 
sharks are very, very vulnerable because they have a pretty low reproductive strategy. And in Britain, we've almost got both ends of the spectrum. At one end, you've got things like threshers and, and poor beagles and, and makos that have a very low fecundity, a very low reproductive strategy. At the other end, you've got the blue shark that is one of the more productive. I can remember being on a boat in Loo probably mid-1980s, and we hauled a female aboard, and she pupped on deck. And we suddenly had 30, 40, I don't know, pups squiggling around all over the place that we all got back in the water, and we got her back in as well. But generally speaking, sharks reproduce in various different ways, including egg cases. I mean, lots and lots of people walking the beaches don't realise when they see what they call a mermaid's purse, that that may well have been a little member of the shark family or a little ray. So you've got these various methods of reproduction, but generally speaking, none of their reproductive methods allow them to take overfishing pressure, which is why sharks have got into the condition they've got into around the world. Basically, they're being overcaught and can't keep pace with the catching. But when sharks give premature birth in a boat, such as spur dogs do, and also the blue shark you mentioned there, providing it isn't too premature and despite still having quite large yolk sacs attached, what are the realistic chances of survival? Very good, very good. Obviously it depends how premature. People often say about sharks, well, they're poor parents because although they reproduce some species similarly to mammals, basically they abandon the pups at birth, so to speak, but what's forgotten is that those pups are absolutely 100% viable as soon as they're born. So if you like, the sort of maternal looking after has happened prior to being born rather than after. And if you've got a, a load of pups on deck from a spur dog or a blue shark, Provided they're not premature and they're put back quickly, I reckon the survival rate, no reason why it shouldn't be nearly 100%, should be very good. Having said all of that, do you think it's preferable to disgorge sharks in the water for body cavity support and to cut traces close to the mouth when you know that fish are deeply hooked? Oh, it's very difficult. The longest I've ever had a shark on board a boat, Now I'm not terribly proud of this and it wasn't a terribly brilliant effort, but it was probably about four and a half minutes and it was a poor beagle about 20 years ago. And I am convinced that she went off absolutely okay. And we had to get her in because she it was a J-hook and it was deeply embedded. We used to have a trick in those days. We used to get an old bit of builder's pipe with about, I don't know, five-inch diameter. And I used to have another one, four-inch diameter, which I used to stick in their mouth to keep their mouth wedged open so I could put my arm through it and feel down. I haven't done that for many, many years, but we've been using circle hooks for many, many years. But generally speaking, I would like to see the hook removed in the water rather than the animal having to be inboarded. If it is inboarded, provided it's kept oxygenated, provided its eyes are kept covered up, provided, if possible, it's, it's kept on a soft, slightly yielding surface, it will go back fine. But obviously it's much better if you can to disgorge them in the water and get everything out. Letting them swim away with a trace is not good news because we don't know what the survival is. I, I often hear that if sharks weren't surviving, we'd know about it because they'd be washed up, they'd be dredged up, they'd this, that, and the other. I'm really not convinced about that at all. I think they can swim a long way before they die. We actually proved this with a poor beagle some years ago. Another interesting thing with a poor beagle, I remember hearing of a tagged animal that was tagged on the Isle of Wight and was then recaught off Southern Ireland about six years later. And I reckon that its growth rate was probably half what it should have been. That rather indicated that the fish had been stressed to such a degree that although it had survived, you know, its whole progression towards adulthood and so on and so forth had been retarded as a result of its experience. People with an interest in sharks will have noted reports recently of rare or occasional migrant species appearing in British waters with increasing regularity. 
off the top of my head. These have included wine tips and hammerheads. In addition to which, Andy Griffith has just caught the first mako in home waters for over 40 years. So is there any sort of developing pattern here, and what else might we expect? I don't think there is a pattern yet. If you look at the Shark Conservation Society website, and this by no means lists all occurrences, but you'll see threshers, for example, and makos have been around donkey's years. The makos' tolerance of temperature starts at about where our waters stop, so about 18 degrees. So they've never been massively plentiful in the last 40, 50 years, but they've always been here. Hammerheads have been recorded here for a long, long, long time. I remember a great story about a guy walking his dog on the beach at Ilfracombe, I think about 60 years ago, and he walked round a headland and they discovered a, a three, four metre hammerhead flopping about in a rock pool. They've been around a long time, not plentiful, occasional vagrant visitors, hammerheads, whereas makos are a British shark for the warmest months of the year. I don't think things are changing, but it would only take a small increase in water temperature to bring more makos, because they'd be more happy in our waters, they'd be better able to tolerate it because we're at the edge of their range, and that also applies to the oceanic white tip. There have been various, what shall I say, credible reports. I, I can't say they were oceanic white tips because I didn't see them, but I, there's been a couple of guys who I've spoken to and, and I've no reason to disbelieve them. They certainly sounded credible, they knew what they're doing, quite convinced they'd seen uh, oceanic white tips. Let's not forget that one did turn up, washed up in, I think, Sweden, some years ago. What we don't know about that, of course, is whether or not it was a, f a fish that was washed up out of the sea, if you like, or whether it maybe it had been discarded off a boat. So I'm not convinced oceanics get anywhere near Sweden. But say, another one degree in water temperature, and, and I would see the occasional oceanic white tip turning up, I'd see more makos turning up. We need to remember, however, that the pressure on makos and all these sharks in the Atlantic is enormous. They're not protected. It's not anglers who are doing damage. It's massive commercial fishing interests, which are taking out blue sharks and mako sharks in their millions every year. The obvious next question has to be the likelihood of a great white. There have already been reports, some of them very credible, and what people should understand is that this is not a warm water species. Suitable food is probably more of a determining factor here. So what can you throw into the mix on that particular topic? This will sound hugely big-headed, but I'm, I'm supposed to be one of the authorities, maybe the authority, and I've investigated over probably the last 15, 18, 20 years now, something like a hundred claimed instances of white sharks in our waters. Post-investigation, about seven or eight of those cases remain credible, and as far as I'm concerned, they don't just remain credible, I believe we get the occasional vagrant visitors in our waters. The big puzzle in Britain is not whether we get great white sharks, it's why we don't get more great white sharks. One part of the reason could be that we've killed far too many. The population of the North Atlantic is supposed to be depleted by something like 80%. So why are we getting increased potential sightings? It's got nothing to do with more sharks, it's got everything to do with more people. Population's going up, more people on the cliffs, more people in the water, more people out recreational, rafting, kayaking, fishing, angling, blah, 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 blah. But I'm quite convinced we get the occasional vagrant visitor. The water temperatures are actually perfect, absolutely perfect. They're a mirror image of South Africa, of California, of South Australia, and various other places where populations, I won't say thrive anymore, but where populations exist and have existed for a long time. So we got the right food source. We don't have 
the same kind of seal colonies, the same size that they have in, in South Africa, for example, but in the Western Isles in Scotland, um, off the North Hebrides Isle of North Uist is North Europe's largest seal colony. That should be paradise for great white sharks. So the big mystery is why we don't get them, not whether we get them, because I'm quite convinced we get the occasional one passing by. And what's very interesting is that virtually all the great white cases that I've examined that I regard as being credible are not isolated. You may remember in 1999, a very well-known shark angling skipper, a guy called Phil Britz, who works the Blue Fox out of Padstow. Phil and a guy called Gilby, who's well-known in angling circles. Henry Gilby. That's right. Phil, Henry Gilby and others were on board a boat just off where I live here in Butte, off Cambeek Head, and they were absolutely convinced. There were seven of them on board, I think. They were quite convinced they'd seen a great white shark. And they didn't necessarily know what they were looking at, but they did know what they weren't looking at. These are people who have seen blue sharks, they've seen threshers, they've seen poor beagles. So they were convinced it wasn't something that they'd seen before, except for Mike Turner, who's Phil's partner in the Blue Fox. And Mike had, uh, was a South African commercial fisherman for a while, and he knew what he had seen. And he's absolutely convinced he had seen a white shark. Interestingly enough, two days later, another shark angler, a guy called Paul Vincent, who lives in Bude, was fishing precisely the same spot. Precisely. He caught a tope, he got the fish to the side of the boat, he's just getting it in, and this big guy rocked up and bit the bottom two-thirds off and grinned at him, said thanks very much, and sunk back in the water with two-thirds of the tope. And then about two weeks after that, a few miles down the road, off Tintagel Head, a potter pulled up a very large dead shark that was not a basking shark. It had drowned, it had got it rope in its mouth, instead of just chomping twice and swimming on, what they do is they twist and turn and they wrap themselves, so they become immobile, so they drown. And that description precisely fitted again a great white shark. So you've got three instances involving, I think it was 11 witnesses, involving six miles of water and involving two weeks, all telling the same story about the same fish. Now, that tends to be the pattern when I get a credible great white shark sighting, within a few years or a few months or a few whatever, I get other people coming up saying they've seen the same thing. And so I'm absolutely convinced we get the occasional one here. Is it worth anglers going out and having a go? Not unless they get all the time in the world, because the chances, I'm afraid, are so slim as to be non-existent. And we must not forget that we've killed 80% of the white sharks in the North Atlantic. You mentioned the Hebrides there, which for me at least was the most credible report that I've come across. There you had a marine biologist about to do a dive, whose boat was repeatedly circled by what he claimed was a great white. Credible witnesses don't come much better than that. That was Simon Greenstreet, with his wife and two other divers. The first pair had just come up from a dive, and Simon and his wife were getting ready to dive, and they were on a I think a seven-metre rib or a six-metre rib or something. And they were just getting ready to do their dive, and they saw a big fin. And the engine must have been off, because I remember Simon telling me they started the engine. Now, one thing about white sharks is they're really curious. I've had many situations in South Africa and other places, South Australia, where I've seen a shark coming up my chumstick, and then for whatever reason it's decided not to come. Banging the boat, starting the engine, banging a can, anything you like, that attracts their attention that they can hear, they'll often come and have a look. And when Simon started his engine, this big fin that they'd uh, kind of in their minds were thinking was probably a basking shark, I guess, turned towards them. And as it came towards them, they realized it wasn't a basking shark. And this shark, which 
and they described exactly a great white, and Simon is not uh, a shark marine biologist, but I respect the views of scientists when it comes to describing things, because they're trained to observe and describe accurately, and they exactly described a great white shark. They had a precise measurement, because this fish very obligingly swam right down the side of their rib, so they could measure it against the rib. That's one of my credible sightings, that the one you've just mentioned. Yeah, absolutely. Sharks with the cartilaginous body frames split off from the rest of the fish with bony skeletons way back in the early history of fish evolution. So what is it then about the biology that makes them so different, or even special? That's a very difficult question to comment on because sharks are divided into various orders and the latest Sharks of the World book, for example, has over 500 species listed in it. And we use this word shark as kind of a generic word that is a sort of catch-all word, but a whale shark and a cookie-cutter shark are a billion miles apart, so it's quite difficult to sort of answer that question in a catch-all way. I was thinking in terms of the respiration, buoyancy regulation, and the way in which they deal with nitrogenous waste and osmol regulation, and how that might or might not be an advantage over other fish such as, say, cod or bass. Their respiration is interesting. Their respiration is, is evolving all the time. I mean, some sharks, as I'm sure you're aware, have now found a way of sitting on the sea bottom and they sort of, they pump water over their gills and they keep themselves oxygenated. Other shark species have to keep moving in order to keep oxygenating. And it is likely those sharks that have discovered a way of breathing when stationary by gill pump action, it's likely that all sharks will eventually move that way because it's a logical evolutionary sort of movement. Other sharks are semi-warm-blooded. The poor beagle, the thresher, the mako, the great white, all semi-warm-blooded, all have a sort of heat exchange system through a net thing with a wonderful name, the rete mirabili, and they keep themselves semi-warm-blooded. That's one of the reasons they're so fast into action. But that really does kind of illustrate, in a way, how diverse these animals are. You know, over 500 sharks, only four of them warm-blooded, and seven orders, a variety of reproductive strategies. It's quite difficult to generalize. You mentioned there being around 500 species of shark. Does that include skates and rays, which are, after all, just flattened out sharks? <laughs> That's what I call them, and I'm always getting into trouble for that. No, no, that is specifically shark species. Sticking with the species theme, anglers in the UK have for years fished for two different species of smoothhound, the starry and the common, or so they thought. That was until Irish PhD researcher Ed Farrell, who's also recorded an interview for audio angling, demonstrated using DNA analysis that every smoothhound he sampled from UK waters, both from museum collections and from the wild, was the same species, Mustellus asterius, what anglers call the starry smoothhound. I put this point to British Record Fish Committee Chairman Mike Healing, asking why the BRFC still list the two species, to which he replied that their fish expert Oliver Crimmon disagreed with Ed Farrell. So what's your take on this? I wouldn't like to take a side. They're both hugely respected guys. I think Ed's sample was pretty big over a number of years. I've now started using his research as what I quote. In other words, we get starry smoothhounds. I'm not quite sure why Oliver doesn't like that. I, possibly he thinks that the sample size wasn't big enough, wasn't over a big enough period of time. I don't know whether he's got specimens which gainsay uh, Ed Farrell's research. I'm not aware that that's the case. I think it's two strains of opinion. And as so often happens with science, it may well take a few more years and a bit more research 
for science to come down absolutely on the side of one or the other. But to me it makes perfect sense that starry smooth hands without stars could very easily have been uh, misidentified over many, many years, which gave rise to us thinking we had both species. But Ed's DNA sampling would seem to me to be a pretty good guide, and he's convinced we've only got the one species. That's the wisdom I'm going with at the moment. But evolution just simply doesn't slot two almost identical related species into the same niche. There would have to be some division somewhere, whether that be feeding, preferred depth, latitude or whatever. Yeah, but I, I mean, I, I agree with you, but I wouldn't go with Ed for that reason. I mean, I think you could turn your hypothesis round and you could say that because they're so similar as to be almost indistinguishable, and given the migratory tendencies of many species, they would end up occupying the same niche anyway. I think time's going to tell, actually, but at the moment, I agree, I'm going with Ed, yeah. Now, pretty much as soon as this interview is concluded, you're off to Africa for the winter. Work or pleasure? As a shark researcher, I don't get paid very often. As chairman of the Shark Trust and Shark Conservation Society, I don't get paid, but that is virtually my full-time occupation. But I still have to try and make some money, otherwise I'd probably be divorced. So in order to do that, I, I do quite a lot of public speaking. I have an agent. That pays me. I do quite a lot of television and radio. That pays me. And I write books, and I take film and sell it. I take photographs and sell it. There's not much for someone like me to do in Northern Europe in the winter outdoors. So I go to South Africa for the winter, where obviously there's an awful lot more I can do um, with wildlife in general, not just sharks. I mean, sharks are my particular thing, but I've just got a book, for example, that I'm delighted we've got a pretty major deal with the biggest publisher in the world, a book I've just done on rhino poaching. And I'm going back to South Africa this year, and I guess most of my winter will be taken up getting that book out and promoting it. And then I shall nip down and, and swim and photograph and film great whites and seven gills and, and everything else interesting I can find as much as I can. I've done a bit of filming of great whites myself in South Africa, where cage diving is obviously very popular. But some would argue it's also potentially very dangerous, both in drawing these huge fish in close to the shore and also conditioning them to associate human activity with food. So what's your take on that? No. The chumming of sharks to attract them to cages has not in any way been shown scientifically to produce conditioned behaviour. By conditioned behaviour, just to define it for your listeners, we mean a response to a situation. So, for example, where they're feeding sharks, those sharks have learnt to associate the, engine, the, the noise of a boat engine and any other various things with the arrival of lunch. That's not happening with chum great whites in South Africa. The main reason is they're not being fed. They're only being fed when they're fast enough to get a tuna head or something on the end of the bait line, and that's a mistake. So there is no scientific evidence to show that they're being conditioned. Up in Mossel Bay, which is further up the coast towards Durban, they were deliberately fed several years ago as part of a research program, and those sharks started to show conditioned behaviour. So I think the case is this. As long as they're not fed, as long as they're just chummed with a scent trail, they won't become conditioned. If they were becoming conditioned, the nine boats out there every single day that the weather lets them get there, they would be producing a population that would be hanging around the whole time if conditioning was happening. But they're not. They're very transient. We see them come and go all the time. So I don't believe it's producing conditioned behaviour. But other places in the world, like the Caribbean, for example, where feeding is going on for shark ecotourism, then you're definitely getting conditioned behaviour. And I'm not sure that's a good thing. 
because people like me spend our lives trying to sort of put some rationale and some logic into the way we look at sharks, and then every time there's an accident, and there have been a few over the recent years with shark feeding operators, every time there's an accident, our work goes back five years because the headlines scream all the wrong things. So in some ways, I'd like to see shark feeding operations stop, but I'm perfectly happy with chumming operations. And one thing angling does, like other forms of, of shark ecotourism, is it gives these animals a live value. If you catch a shark on rod and line, you've had a great time, shark hasn't had such a great time, you put it back and it's viable, that animal's still alive, you're giving it a live value. You can only kill it once, but if it'll take the bait, you can catch it as many times as you want. The same is true of other forms of ecotourism. So shark ecotourism, when it, whether it's uh, angling or whether it's attracting them to cages, whether it's scuba diving with them, whether it's feeding, whatever it is, it's giving these animals live value, which is good for all of us that want to enjoy sharks in whatever way we want to enjoy them. And for me at least, this is the key message to come away with here. The sooner better Europe-wide or even global legislation to that end comes onto the statute books, the better. The other big message I'm taking away here is that angling and shark conservation also make good bedfellows, providing we as anglers don't blot our copybook. So let's all take Rich's lessons on board here, and hopefully look forward to a long and fruitful shark-filled future. My thanks then to Richard Pierce for taking time out from preparations for his winter migration to help get the shark conservation message across here.